Hello, my name's Jane Madden. I'm a board director and run my own advisory firm, Fielder Insights, which I co-founded six years ago now after quite a long career in public service and also serving overseas at DFAT. Sometimes, and I would say this really occurred to me when I left government, you need to reflect and think, what do I want to experience or contribute? What are the strengths and, you know, potentially the weaknesses I have? And where can I make a difference? This is Welcome to the Founderverse, empowering a new generation of national security practitioners. And now, Meg Tapia. Jane Madden is Global Chair of the Fred Hollows Foundation, President of the National Foundation for Australian Women, former Australian Ambassador to UNESCO and Principal of Brickfielder Insights. In this month's episode, Jane joins us from Ngunnawal country in Canberra to share her experience on what it takes to adapt from a successful public service career to co-founder of her own company, how standing by her values have helped her to create better workplaces and what it's like to meet Nelson Mandela. Jane, you have a lifelong passion for international development and foreign policy. The Defence Strategic Review spoke about the complexity of the security challenges we face in Australia, and it highlighted the role of foreign policy in national security. Can you help us to understand the importance of foreign policy to the broader national security landscape and why defence and foreign affairs need to work together? Yes, I was very encouraged by the latest Defence Review, the Defence Strategic Review 2023, that embraced a whole-of-government approach, and particularly looking at uh, international development and statecraft, because, yes, we all know it's it's easier and much cheaper to avoid a war than to have to wage one. So what are the tools that can prevent conflict and prevent the risk of war? They're things like good diplomacy, strong people-to-people links, international development that fosters economic development that we've seen is so important to building a sense of national security. So it's really good to see those interlinkages between foreign policy, international development, trade and defence coming through. Have you always had a passion for international policy? Where did this come from? Growing up, I was originally going to study medicine. I did well at the HSC and got into study uh, medicine, but I also was a bit restless. So I took a year out and uh, had a rotary scholarship originally to Denmark, last minute change to Japan. So I went uh, off to Japan at uh, just turned 18, no language virtually, to rural Japan where I was in a college of two and a half thousand Japanese students and me. Anyhow, it was a sink or swim experience as you can imagine, but it really was a turning point in, in my life in terms of me thinking about what am I most interested in? What do I enjoy doing? And I decided it really wasn't uh, medicine. I actually don't even like the sight of blood. It's working with people, working across different cultures and uh, trying to get positive outcomes. So I suppose that was the fuel. And then I went on to study uh, economics, law and Japanese. And the more I studied, the more I really enjoyed international affairs. What was that change like for you, knowing that you were going on this Rotary Scholarship to Denmark and at the very last minute it being changed to Japan? How did you deal with that sudden shift when you were so young? I think taking the step as it was, you know, this is really a long time ago, late 70s, to just say I'm going on a year's scholarship 
overseas uh, when all my friends were either settling into just you know the university up the road I grew up in Hobart uh, the university was literally up the road or continuing nursing or, or you know doing local careers was already a signal that I was up for any challenge and I thought you know, having read Denmark, that it was going to be wonderful. And I was really looking forward to that. So initially, I had some disappointment. But then I thought, well, each and every country has its strengths. And there'll be interesting things to do in Japan. And um, my family, my parents in particular, encouraged me and said, you know, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So off I went. (laughs) And then you later in your career became ambassador. Yes, to Japan. Japan. What was that like? Oh, no, I, I have to say I wasn't ambassador to Japan. I was uh, at the ambassador level in Paris, but I did have two postings to Japan, one in the uh, late 80s and then from 94 to 98, I was first secretary, later councillor. It was fantastic. It was a real sense of using professional language skills, knowledge of the country and contributing to an emerging agenda that Australia and Japan shared, not just bilaterally, but in the region and globally. So it, it was very personally fulfilling. And on a private front, my uh, husband, who I'd met in South Africa on another posting, he initially was nervous about Japan, but he came to love it. And we brought our first child there and actually had a second baby uh, there and then came back and had a third. So Japan is sort of intrinsic to our family's life as well. One of the questions I'm often asked um, by young people that are wanting to get into the foreign affairs, national security space, particularly wanting to work overseas, is a question around language, whether it helps to know a foreign language. What's your thoughts on that? Is language more important? Is just having an open mind and appreciation of other cultures important? Where do you sit there? Uh, I think that language skills are important and I do believe that the study of another language can be a demonstration of that openness, that uh, desire to know more about another country and culture. I also think it helps you know more about your own language and country by studying languages because there's often multiple dimensions to, to learning a language. You know, there are some countries you can go to where English reigns supreme and it is, you know, the working language of many international organizations. But having another language lets you go deeper and understand perspectives that you don't actually get to by having just one language. When I was in DFAT, I did look after the language studies area and uh, commissioned a major review under the then secretary. And we did look really carefully across our global footprint at the time and work out that, you know, some posts we will need to have language designated positions because the insights that people can offer you on and off the record when you have the language are just much more forthcoming and just give you perspectives that you wouldn't otherwise get just conversing in your own language of English. It seems to me that you are a very open-minded and inclusive person. You're very curious. Where did this curiosity come from? Oh, well, thank you, Meg. I would hope that I am fairly open and inclusive. I think they are important values. And it is fueled by curiosity, curiosity to know more about the world, more about other people, more about what you know, our purpose is and what we can do. It does come back, I suppose, to some of the early values inculcated by my parents, uh, both scientists who really encouraged uh, myself and my three siblings really to follow any challenges that we wanted to, to be brave, to like ourselves. And uh, I think those early sort of reference points are still with me now. 
So one of the challenges that I've seen you rise to is that you were the first female FCS officer in DFAT to work part-time. You championed part-time work for the SES when you were a DFAT at that level. How big a change did that make? Look, I think it made a big change. And for me, it was really important. I uh, had been promoted to the SES, but at the same time, I had three children under four. My husband had just opened a business, which was very demanding. And then he also got a very poor health diagnosis. So for me, if I couldn't have worked part-time, I was willing to, to leave. But at the same time, I was aware that other government departments, including the Treasury, were realising some flexibility about work was important to retain and also even to recruit staff, particularly those with you know, family responsibilities, but not solely. And so I really did a lot of effort putting together the business case on why you know, not just I needed it, but why DFAT needed to go that way in order to be an employer of choice in, in the future. And luckily, the then secretary, Ashton Calvert, after some time agreed, and I was able to uh, go uh, initially three days and then four days a week, leading a branch that was a huge responsibility in charge of all of staff development, including locally engaged staff and all post issues. And you think of the post issues around the world we have, it was a big job, but with a good team and people, you know, who were also interested in having some flexibility in their own careers and working lives formed really well and got a very good posting at the end of it, which I think had a, some somewhat of a demonstration effect because nowadays there are just so many people working part-time. It's almost seen as a not an entitlement per se, but at all levels, um, that flexibility of working hours has been recognised. We can all thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, I think we thank leadership that was persuaded to take the arguments. And uh, I think, you know, I stood on my mother's shoulders. Uh, she was a very talented biochemist who worked at the Walter Eliza Institute with Nobel laureates. She was not able to reach her career potential because she was juggling four children in my, my father's career. So she was a real feminist, someone who advocated for the rights of women, for gender equality. And I think that that was you know, partly behind my thinking. But each and every one of us, when we're working flexibly or we're thinking about maternity leave, realise that it wasn't always so and only in very recent time have people done a lot of hard work and we stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. Mm. You spoke there about some of your values and some of the values that you picked up from your from your mother and from your parents. I know that you're the president of the National Foundation for Australian Women. You have a number of other board roles, including currently you're the global chair of the Fred Hollows Foundation. And in the past, you've previously been a board member for the Black Dog Institute. What principles or values do you focus on when you're determining your personal alignment for these sorts of board roles? How do you choose them? I think it comes back to a degree of self-awareness. You know, sometimes there's some immediate alignment, but sometimes, and I would say this really occurred to me when I left government, you need to reflect and think, what do I want to experience or contribute? What are the strengths and, you know, potentially the weaknesses I have? And where can I make a difference? 
And so to me, those organizations represent things that are really important to me, uh, gender equality we've touched on. Fred Hollows is just an amazing organization globally working in more than 30 countries, which has through really practical actions like, you know, $25 supporting the return of eyesight made a difference to people's lives and it's even more needed now. So uh, some of these things are really just aligned to values that I had, but some of them I also had to think about. Black Dog Institute is suicide and uh, mental health. And that was because I was also trying to make a contribution, recognizing that I had lost, particularly in Tasmania, a number of dear friends to suicide. And it was just a sense of, God, can I do anything? Can I contribute in any way, shape or form to the work of some of these great organizations? So that's, that's the driver. You've certainly chosen to make a difference and eventually, even though you didn't leave DFAT at that time when you were looking at the need for you to go into part-time work, you did eventually leave and you've now got your own company, Rickfielder Insights. I know for me, it took me a really long time and a lot of self-reflection and skills analysis to figure out my value to the market. How did you go about figuring out your value to the market, particularly after such a long APS career? Yeah, I've been in the APS um, for over 30 years. Um, So as well as DFAT, I'd gone across to work in the Department of Resources, Energy and Tourism as a division head, uh, then back into the portfolio in Austria leading investment and then later as deputy secretary and I'd also done some comments to the prime minister's department so I'd had a really fantastic APS career but it got to a point in 2017 when I really wasn't happy with the way things were we don't have to go into it all but I was not feeling that I was motivated anymore to the extent I had been and perhaps it was time for me to look elsewhere uh, before I got too old and uh, (laughs) decided just to retire and so, as I said, that that time of self-reflection is really important. And I think, you know, especially as busy working parents, often, you know, you think, I haven't got time to think about myself. But particularly when you're at those career points, when you think, well, what could I do? What else might be available to me? You actually have to be brutally honest and do that self-reflection, sometimes bouncing it off trusted friends or colleagues. But um, for me, it was that sense of, well, I would like to contribute in a number of ways. I'd already been on a couple of boards. What else could I do? Paid board roles, yes, and I'm on a number of those. Would I have some advisory work? Always that notion of sort of helping people on their career journey had been important to me, and I'd led the sort of graduate recruiting recruitment and staffing area in DFAT as I had in other agencies later. And so I thought maybe there's something around that. I suppose I co-founded the firm with another colleague who was leaving government. And I was nervous that maybe we wouldn't make any money and maybe no one would come and want our services. But I think it's through word of mouth, through that confidence and clarity that you can get about what your offering is So you can sort of begin to take action and talk to people in a way that's aligned with who you are and with the purpose that you have, working out how that intersects with the agenda of your prospective client. It's not something I thought I'd naturally be good at, but it's something I've come to really relish, seeing what the problem of a client, be it a government client or a company client or a not-for-profit, and thinking about how I can bring my skills and, you know, many years' experience to bear to help them address the challenge they have in front of them. 
What do you think's been the biggest change that you've experienced from working in the APS to now running your own business? Being a deputy secretary, having a large group of staff reporting, including even personal staff and EA and executive officer, IT help departments to go to a small advisory firm where if the cartridge needs changing, I've got to go to Officeworks and get the cartridge and change it myself. You know, it's it's very tangible, but you do have to spend time in the business as well as working for the business and getting that balance right. Luckily, I've worked with some great people and we've had some teams of support that we've worked out uh, as well as, you know, I have a good accountant, a bookkeeper, people who keep me on the straight and narrow so I can focus on purpose of the business rather than to spend all the time problem solving around technical and financial matters. But I suppose that adaption and having no status or ego and just being who you are and as good as your shingle is tricky. And I should just at this point say Brickfielder is an important term because it's the place where government and business first worked together when Sydney Town was developing way back. And it's also the warm wind of change. Everyone knows the southerly buster, the cold wind of change, but the Brickfield is the hot, warm wind of change. So there's a bit of significance in, in the name and it's about trying to make a change, whether it's solve problems for a client or help a person you know, on their leadership journey become the potential that they want to achieve. You've had a lot of transition and change in your life and sometimes quite sudden change, like the change from Denmark to Japan in your early life. What would you say to those that are trying to overcome that fear of transition, whether it's from APS to corporate or from corporate into the public service? What have you learned on your journey about how to transition well that you would offer to others? I think it's that openness to change that we touched on earlier, have that mindset. Secondly, it's having that clarity and confidence about what you've got. You know, we can't all be Nobel laureates, but each and every one of us have certain skills and experience. And if you have a sense of who you are and what things you'd like to do, it gives you clarity and confidence to go ahead. So that's the second thing. And the third thing I'd say is back yourself. So once you've got that, talk to people about it. Like, I'm interested in perhaps this opportunity, I've done this and this. Do you think that would be a good fit? Can you introduce me to someone who might help me get there? People do use networks informally and formally, whether it's LinkedIn, whether it's coffee dates, to navigate their way forward. And I think if you've got a sense of who you are and what you want to do, it really helps then to sort of check in with other people so you can achieve the change that you desire. Pivoting here slightly, we often see in this national security, foreign affairs space, the benefits that come from the big companies that help departments and agencies to achieve their goals. But I'm wondering if you can give me a few examples of how you've found that small businesses can help the government with its goals and objectives. It's an interesting time to be talking about this, you know, in the wake of the PwC scandal and still probably more to follow. I do think there is a role for small companies. I believe that there's an agility, a nimbleness to us. We can come in, do a defined job. Sure, the government, and particularly I think this government under Prime Minister Albanese and with Finance Minister Katie Gallagher, quite focused on the public service doing most of the public policy and uh, a large part of government's agenda. But there are limits to that expertise. There are times when there is a really strong business need 
for consultants or advisory firms to come in to address a certain issue for a finite period or to extend expertise or extra you know, resources to something that is not available in-house inside government. And I think this is where you know small firms can actually have the edge over large firms because invariably we're usually stronger value for money. We don't come in with a huge you know machinery or bureaucracy behind us. There's not units that we have to clock on and clock off. Sometimes working with the big consulting firms, you engage someone at a partner level and then later on you find that you've only got them for 0.01 of the job and the rest of the time you've got underlings. I think small firms are much more what you see, what you get. And some of the examples I could say is that I've worked with some of the biggest government departments and some of the really large global technology firms. And I've come in for a short time to do a discrete job for them. And then I've exited. And they've said that was really helpful to get your insights and experience at that point in time, just as an input into our decision making. But I don't need to be there all the time. I can come in and do something and then go on to the next challenge. Given your extensive career, the number of people that you've met, the highlights that you've had, the places that you've traveled to, I can't let you leave without asking What's been a highlight? And in particular, I have heard that you've met Vladimir Putin. What was that like? <laughs> well, Vladimir Putin and I did have breakfast together in Paris, got uh, back in 2006 now, so many years ago. But it was a small breakfast setting when I was the Charge uh, acting ambassador. Uh, and he and his wife, my husband and I, with the mayor of Paris and his partner, had uh, a wonderful breakfast. But it was not wonderful in that Putin, even then, I thought was icy cold. He had the chilliest eyes I've ever known, like a fish, but more lifeless, if that's possible. And he seemed extremely narcissistic in the way everything had to just keep coming back to him and his own personal experience. So more positively, I'd like to end by talking about almost at the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, sharing a meal with Nelson Mandela on the day he came out of prison at Archbishop Tutu's house. I was invited, a small group of people, to join the family of uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, that was such an uplifting experience because there he was. No one knew what he even looked like at the time after uh, almost 27 years of incarceration. And he was warm. He was positive. He was hopeful about the country. And he was caring to each and every one of us, asking us questions like, to me, he said, thank you, you know, Jane, for all the support Australia's given to the anti-apartheid movement. You know, thank you for the wallabies not coming here. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. His knowledge was encyclopedia. But then he said, but how are you finding South Africa? You don't have any family here. Do you have a partner? You must be very lonely. Do you find it difficult? And I just thought, here is the man that the world has been dying to see. And he's taking that step to be compassionate, empathetic, caring to other individuals and being remarkably selfless, even though the focus of the world was on him. So uh, maybe that's an interesting juxtaposition, uh, Meg, to leave you with. Before we go, one final question that I like to ask everyone, and that is, what is a promising area, an emerging trend or a piece of advice that you're currently paying attention to? Like everyone, I am paying attention to the growth of artificial intelligence and what it means to all of us, particularly those in policy, whether it's foreign policy, security, domestic 
how do we make sure that we use it and it doesn't use us? And as we await for the robo-debt uh, findings to come out, we've got a really important case study how we can misuse technology. And I think that there will be an expanding science around the effective use of AI and its intersection with public policy for good outcomes for countries and uh, communities. Jane, thank you for joining me on The Founders. Thank you very much, Meg. You've been listening to Welcome to the Founderverse, brought to you by Novexus. Innovate. Connect. Thrive.